This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. If you're in here this morning, let's open our Bibles together to John chapter 3. We're going to start right in because we have much work to do. John chapter 3. If you didn't bring a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you. It's black. It's hardback. If you don't have a Bible that you like reading at home, take that one. It's a gift to you. So this is our third sermon in the Gospel of John chapter 3. And I have what I think is a little confession to make this morning. I have read John chapter 3 many times. Many, many times, I would say. I have preached several sermons from this chapter. I've preached from a couple of series of sermons in this chapter. And I think until I really sat with it this week, I have ignored an incredible invitation held out in the second half of John 3 because I've always focused on the first half. The first half of John 3 is a very famous conversation. Jesus telling Nicodemus a person must be born again. And then, perhaps the most well-known, at least most referenced Bible verse in all the world, John 3.16, that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's in John, the first half of, of John 3. And so it's easy to focus on the first half at the neglect of the second half. But we're not going to do that this morning. There are seminal Christian truths in the first half, and then they are reinforced. They are returned to in the second half of John 3. You must be born again or, or born from above. And the way you are is to believe that God has given his son to be received by faith. The rest of this chapter is just as important as those seminal truths. Because it teaches us, it tells us what authentic belief in God's son Jesus is. And in doing that, it shows us and it instructs us in the components of genuine belief. So here's what these verses that we are about to read say this morning. It's to put it in your minds early so that you can be prepared to hear it well. Genuine belief exalts and listens to Jesus. Authentic faith, a true believer, you would say, exalts and listens to To Jesus. That's the focus, the central idea of this passage. And so I encourage you to follow along in your own Bible as I read John 3. I'll start at verse 22. Genuine faith exalts and listens to Jesus. John 3, starting at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. 
and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness, bear me witness, that I said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now let's break there. We're going to finish the rest, but we'll take a break right here. I wanted to read longer into this section before circling back because I I wanted you to have the words of John in mind as we work now slowly through them. So if you go back to verse 22, the first two words we read there are, after this. After what? After Jesus' conversation with the Pharisee Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to investigate Jesus. He's never heard anybody teach like Jesus. And, and, And from that, Jesus says, Nicodemus, most people are like you. They walk in the dark. But when you believe, Jesus says in me, when you believe in Jesus, God brings us into the light of life with him. And then Nicodemus is gone. That's how verse 21 ends. Nicodemus is just gone. We don't know how he left. We don't even know how he responded to Jesus. Jesus just teaches and Nicodemus is gone. And then we get verse 22. Jesus and his disciples are in the countryside and they're baptizing there. And then we have somebody that we haven't seen in a little while. We have again in John's gospel, John the Baptist. Now, now the Baptist was prominent in chapter one. He's the one who prepares the way for the Messiah. He announces that Jesus is that Messiah And now he's back. In chapter 3, he's here again. And so the first question that I think we should ask of John's gospel in relation to these verses is why? Why is John the Baptist back? John the gospel writer doesn't waste words. So why has he brought the Baptist back into the narrative? And I think the answer is the answer to to most of what John does. John loves contrasts. He's a clever writer, and he's always working to show you the difference between two things. And so what we've just come out of, what we've just come away from, is Nicodemus, who was in the dark. And the last thing that Jesus said to Nicodemus was that believers people who know that Jesus is the son of God, they're brought into the light and they now walk in the light. So Nicodemus was in the dark, believers are in the night, and now we're back with John the Baptist. 
John the Baptist was the first person in the gospel who believed in Jesus. He called him the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He points to him as the Messiah, and it says that John was there to prepare the way for the light. This is the contrast. Nicodemus was in the dark. Jesus said, you must come into the light. And now we're going to be, read again about John the Baptist, who is our example, our illustration, our display of one who walked in the light. So John the Baptist is back so that we might learn more from him. And this is what happens. Here's the scenario. John is baptizing and Jesus is baptizing. But more and more people are going to Jesus for baptism. And so people want to know, what does John think about this? John was on the scene first baptizing. And so the question is, are you mad that there's a new act in town and people like the new guy more than you? And what does John say? He says, praise be to God. That's the way it should be. I mean, actually what he says is a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given to him from heaven. In other words, people are going to Jesus because God is giving them the grace to see that Jesus is the one who they should go to. Here's how John the Baptist would say this today, I think. People are going to Jesus because he's where you're purified and he is where you will find your joy. Your joy will be found in him. Again, in one other way of saying this, John is, John is saying, I'm old news. I was doing a thing. That's the way we say it now. I was doing a thing, but there's a better thing that's come. And the explanation here is in verse 27. John the Baptist says this is the work of God. The, the fact actually that Jesus are going to people is evidence that God is doing a work in them. So verse 27 says that this is the work of God. Verse 28 is John saying this has always been the plan. He was always just temporary. And then in verse 29, John says he loves this. This isn't a loss for John. This isn't something that John has to grieve and kind of think, well, once I was a big deal, but I guess I'm going to give way to Jesus. Now, John loves this. This is what he has hoped for. The way it says it here in John's gospel is this is joy for John the Baptist. And this is the path to joy and happiness for us too. So let's look with intention again at verse 28. In chapter 1, uh, starting at verse 6, it says that John was sent from God to be the light himself. Not, not to be the light himself, sorry. Not to be the light himself, but to bear witness about the light. And the light is Jesus. Now, if you look at verse 28, that's, what, that's basically what it says in, in verse 28. I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. Now, look at what it says in verse 29. It says, I've been given the honor of standing as best man in the incoming of at the wedding 
of the bride and the bridegroom. So I've had the privilege of standing as best man in two weddings. I kind of lived the I kind of lived the quintessential dream. I went to college, I made two really best friends, and when both of them got married, they asked me to stand with them as their best man, and when I got married, I said there's really no rules to this. I'm just going to have two best men because I can't possibly choose between these two guys who are and have become brothers to me. And so one of the the the, the great honors of my life has been to stand up with them and to affirm with them that they are good men. And I took my role as best man seriously. Now, you can take the best man job all kinds of ways, but I think if you're a best man, if you ever have a chance to do this, you've got two main things to do. First, if you're a Christian, you should pray for your friend, the man getting married. And that's what I did. We asked God to make this man a husband to his wife like Christ is to his bride of the church. And second, so you should pray, you should support, you should encourage, you should be there. And then the second thing you have to do as best man is you have to make a speech. And every single one of us has been to a wedding, probably I should say. Most of us have been to a wedding where we've heard a terrible best man speech And hopefully you've heard a good one. If you ever have a chance to do this, don't make dumb jokes. Don't be a knucklehead. Do this. Stand up and say how special it was to be there with your friend and to listen to him make vows and then testify that you are there to say that your friend is the kind of guy who will fulfill those vows. Frankly, if you can't do that, Say, I can't be your best man. If you can't stand up and say, I'm here to say, this is the kind of guy who will fulfill these vows. Don't be that guy who tries to, to tell lame jokes. And so let me tell you about one of the two speeches that I had to make. I might even get a little bit emotional here because this was really hard. Uh, one of my friends had to move his wedding up because his mother-in-law was dying of cancer. His future mother-in-law was dying of cancer. Uh, the, the woman he married was a great, great friend of mine as well. Her mom ended up passing away like something like two, three months after the wedding. And this is one of the bigger weddings I've ever been to. Uh, probably three or 400 people. And so there were, there were hundreds of people there. I have to make a speech. But I felt the weight of having a woman who's just given her daughter in marriage... And now I'm the one who's supposed to say something about the groom. Three or 400 people there. I felt like I was speaking to just one person. I felt the weight of just feeling that I had one job at this wedding. And it hits different when you're there to testify to the quality of the groom when you know that the mother of the bride isn't going to be around very much longer to see it. So, I very simply, very shortly, in fact, said what I needed to say, that this was a good man. The bride had married the right groom. And then, I did also what best men do. You recognize that the day's not about you. 
You say what you need to say, you get out of the way, and you watch the bride and groom take the rest of the show. They have their first dance, they cut the cake, they do whatever is next. Church, this is the point of verse 29. Jesus is the groom. John the Baptist isn't the groom. He's always known he isn't the groom. He's the, he's the friend. He's the best man. And so it's his greatest joy to stand up, to testify about Jesus, and then let everybody look to Christ. He says what he needs to say, and then he gets out of the way because it's no longer about him. That's how he can say his joy is complete. Complete in the sense that it's full, and complete in the sense that he can now rest, assured that he has done what he was sent to do, and now it's time for him to get out of the way. And so what does he say? Verse 30 is the key verse in, these whole, in all of these verses. He must increase, but I must decrease. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the way to joy and happiness. There is an inverse relationship in the kingdom of God and in the, among the people of God. The way to fullness is less of yourself and more of Jesus. The more you think of and exalt and then follow Christ, the more whole you will become. And you can see how damaging the reverse is as well. The more you think of yourself and give in to your selfish desires, the less human you are. What we're talking about here is humility. Two different New Testament writers say that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God's grace abounds when we lift up Jesus. Now take this just one example. I can prove it to you in just one example. Do you know two people? One who brags about themselves and one who gives glory to God. I bet you do. Which one do you want to hear talk? Which one do you want to hear? Which spurs joy in you? Which fills you with hope? Which encourages you? Christians are joy people. We are joy people. And so let's be like John the Baptist. More of Jesus and less of us. His increase, our decrease. More talking about him, less pointing to ourselves. Day to day, here's how I think you can do that. Let me just give you, let me, let me just give us three. A first thing, be quick and clear to give God the glory. Just as good things happen, praise God. Point to him. Testify to his good work. A second thing, pray. First, pray for humility. Just pray that God would help you to walk humbly before him and humbly before other people. And second, pray for everything else. When we pray, it increases our dependence on the triune God. It exalts the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when we pray, it decreases us because it communicates that we're not dependent on us. 
It says, it, it tells us we're not independent. We're dependent on him. It's not our strength. It's not our ideas. It's us submitting ourselves to him. If you're asking God to move in prayer, you will remember that he's so much greater than you are. And here's a third thing. This is a big one when it comes to other people. So a first thing, give God the glory. A second, pray. And then when it comes to other people, be an encourager. Two of my friends uh, wrote a little book called The Relentless Encourager, and I love that title because it's how we should encourage relentlessly. Keep encouraging people. Here's how encouragement exalts Jesus and diminishes us. If you're always building up other people and thanking God for what he's doing in them, you won't leave any time to suck the air out of the room by bragging about yourself. That's just, that's just the simple reality. When you talk about yourself, you suck the air out of the room. When you talk about other people, you breathe life into it. That's oxygen. Breathe oxygen into the room by celebrating and encouraging other people. Folks, people who have genuine faith, authentic faith in Jesus, exalt him. And the second thing is they listen to his voice. So listen to these next few verses. Uh, commentators, even Bible translators actually, are divided on whether this is more of what John the Baptist is saying or whether this is kind of commentary from John the Gospel writer. Uh, the Greek language doesn't have quotation marks, and so you just have to infer from the context and from the sentence structure whether this is a, a quotation or not. We just can't be sure here. Truthfully, though, I don't think it matters because it doesn't change anything. And so if your conclusion is that this is more of John the Baptist, that's fine. If your conclusion is that this is commentary from John, the gospel writer, that's also fine. Neither of it changes the truthfulness of what we're about to read. I won't, I'll stop sort of saying it doesn't matter. Everything in the word of God matters, but it doesn't change anything. So verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal on this, to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, forgives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son, and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The connection between the previous set of verses from John the Baptist and these last verses is one more contrast. First, Nicodemus and John the Baptist... Now it's John the Baptist and Jesus. The Baptist has been looking for Jesus. And so he knows that Jesus is much greater than he is. For a little while, people listened to John. And that was good. But now, somebody better to listen to has come. Now we listen to Jesus. So let me show you how I think this works. In John 1.23, 
the Baptist says, I am, and listen to this, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. In verse 29, here in John chapter 3, John says, the friend of the bridegroom rejoices to hear his, and here's the word again, voice. First, it's a voice of John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. Now, John, the, bri- or the, the, the best man, delights to hear the voice of the bridegroom. For a little while, it was John's voice. It was always intended that he would speak before, but then the Messiah would come and people would, li- would listen to his voice because his words are the words of eternal life. In John 10, 27, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And now, here in verses 31 and 32, we're told that you can either listen to voices from earth, or you can listen to the witness and the testimony that comes from heaven. Jesus is from heaven. And verse 33 says that when people listen to Jesus, they're showing that they're with him. And it goes on to say, though, that when people don't listen to him, it's a sign that they're rejecting him. And there's no more serious thing in the world than to reject Jesus. Look more closely at verse 33. Whoever receives Jesus' testimony sets his or her seal on the truthfulness of God. So usually we talk about God sealing us. But here it's us setting our seal on God. The, the, excuse me. the picture here is of a wax seal on a document. You would drip wax over parchment and then use a, a custom identifier to mark it as yours so that others would know that it's genuine. John eight forty seven says, whoever is of God, hears the words of God. Listen to that again. Whoever hears the words of God, or sorry, whoever is of God, hears the words of God. Jesus has come as God in the flesh. Those who are born again in him hear his voice and they follow. The way it's being said here is they hear him and they seal it. They say, this is true. I believe this and I will follow it with everything that I am. That's what it means to set your seal upon the truthfulness of God. John can say that he must decrease and Jesus must increase because John knows verses 34 and 35 are right. Jesus is come and when he speaks, he speaks the word of God. John testified, and he had a testimony. But Jesus has come as the once and for all testifier, and he is himself the testimony. Uh, There was something earlier in these verses that I, I just couldn't place. I had trouble slotting it in, and I couldn't really reconcile it. Uh, Do you remember how all of this started? Go back, and you can put your eyes there if you want, but but this is what was happening. Remember, John and Jesus were both baptizing, and more and more people are, are starting to come to Jesus. And then someone comes and asks about purification. 
So John begins to answer. But the thing that I couldn't place was John doesn't talk about all, at all about purification. <laughs> Somebody comes and says, well, which baptism purifies? And then John starts talking about weddings. Why? I, I, I just, I was, why does he answer this way? Why not just say, so earlier in the gospel, in chapter 1, verse 29, he said, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's, that's purification. Why not just say something like that again? Why not just say, well, Jesus' baptism purifies. Mine doesn't, Jesus' does. It seems like he's answering a different question, and I, I wrestled with that. And I, I couldn't quite place it until I got to verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. It drew me back to 129, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I thought, that begins to sound like purification. Verse 36 begins to sound like purification. We have sin. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, it says in 129. He takes away the sin of the world. Verse, in John 3.16, he gives us eternal life. But I'm still not clear on why John didn't just say that. Why start talking about the bridegroom? And here's the reason. I think in the mind of John, the gospel writer, who also wrote the book of Revelation, there's a link here. In Revelation, when John is shown a vision of the new heavenly city that descends, it's a purified city full of purified citizens. This is what it says in Revelation 21.9. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife, not of the bridegroom. He's expected to say, I will show you the wife, or sorry, you would, you would say, I would expect to show you the wife of the bridegroom. Here's the bride, the wife of the bridegroom. But no, it doesn't say that. It says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's what it says in Revelation. If John is being showed the bride who is the wife of the lamb, then the bridegroom is the lamb. So John is saying the answer to who do we go to for purification is simple. We go to Jesus. He purifies us from sin. He does it by his sinless life and his substitutionary death on the cross. And whoever believes in that knows the truth of God. Whoever does not has rejected it. This is why John is so emphatic in that key verse 30. He must increase. Jesus must increase. John must decrease. That's the only way. It can't be 50-50. A little bit of glory for ourselves, a little bit of glory for Jesus. You know, somebody might ask, how do I know if I have increased him enough? How do we know if we've increased Jesus enough? The, the simple pleasure in answering that question is there's always more glory to give him. There's always more glory due his name. We can always increase him more. We will praise his name in the heavenly purified city forever. 
We will fully and finally set our seal on him to know that he is true and righteous and marvelous, only to find that in eternity, when we have praised his name, we've merely scratched the surface of the glory we could give him. And so how do we know if we've increased him enough? The simple truth is there's always more of him to increase. So let us do this and be this together. A people who finds joy in hearing Christ and following Christ and exalting Christ to such a degree that there's no more space or words or time left for even a little bit of us. Earlier I said when we talk about ourselves, we suck the air out of the room. Let's talk about Christ and breathe life into the spaces that we're in. Christ has the words of God, the words of life. Let's long to speak those together and with one another. This is what the Apostle Paul intends when he writes in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How does the word of Christ dwell among us? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Uh, Church, follow me in this one last thought. We can do this both. We can exalt and increase Christ both for the glory of God and the fullness of our joy. We don't exalt him at the decrease of our joy. We exalt him so that our joy becomes full. It it can seem like like a self-fulfilling plan. If I exalt myself, I'll feel better. There might be more of me. People might think more of me. If you listen to your own voice, if you make your own path, it can seem independent. It can seem forthright. It can seem strong. But it's not. It only leads you away from God and it only leads you to death to exalt yourself. But on the other hand, the more we lift up Christ, the more we listen to him, the more we look like him, the more our joy will increase. You can have unending joy, but you'll only have it in Jesus. But that's the beauty of this. The more you increase Jesus, the more the return is your joy. Simple way to say this is this is a win-win for you. Christ gets the glory, you get the joy. Why wouldn't we want that? So church, let's decrease and let's see him increase so that he might be rightly praised and our joy might be full. Let's pray together. God, may you receive the glory, the praise, the exaltation as we listen to your voice. Make us a people in whom the word of Christ dwells richly. And in so doing that, because we are Christians, make us a joy people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. 
To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.